Well, you can be finding a place in Hebrews chapter 2 if you've got a Bible this morning. If not, we'll have it on the screen for you. We are starting our Christmas series called Family Tree. We're going to be talking a lot about the genealogy of Jesus over the next few weeks, something sometimes we kind of skip right through at Christmas. It's that, that section of Scripture right there at the first part of the, of the, uh, of the um, Christmas story in Matthew. Uh, but we're going to kind of intro things today with a passage out of Hebrews 2 that's going to kind of show us the importance of Jesus being born into a family, having a family tree, being born into humanity. And, but when we think of uh, Christmas, a lot of the times we do think of family, right? And so um, a lot of my strongest memories growing up with my family happen around the holidays. There's just uh, the perfect mixture of things for that to happen. And we have family traditions, right? And so uh, my family had our family traditions, or we had our Christmas Eve at, at one grandparent's house, but Christmas Day at the other, certain Christmas lots that we always went to see and all those sort of things, certain foods that you always eat and you always only eat them that time of year, and, and we've got our own little, with our young family, we've got our own uh, traditions and things we do. We like to go to the Epcot uh, Big Candlelight Processional, and there's certain Christmas lots here in town that we like to go see, certain movies that we're going to watch every year, all those, sorts of, all those sorts of things, and for better or worse, all right, for some folks, um, when you think Christmas and you think Christmas season, you think family. And some of the strongest memories you have. And that's interesting because when we think, one of the things we sometimes don't think enough about at Christmas is when we think about Christ coming into the world is the fact that when God chose to send his son into the world, he chose to send him into a family. And that's an amazing thing that, that, that the son of God comes into the world. He has a, a mom and he has an earthly or adoptive dad. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But, but the son of God grew up with parents and he grew up with siblings. Think about that for, the, for a second. Um, obviously, after, after he was born, there were, he had several siblings that we, can, that, that, we, that we know of. And think about the, the home life of the Lord Jesus as a little boy growing up and somehow remaining sinless with siblings. That's a miracle in and of itself. And so um, my, my three can't escape, you know, 10 a.m. without sinning against one another in some way. So, um, that, but, but he was born into a family. That, that's how God chose to send his son into the world. That's how important the family unit is. That's how much God cares about, about your family and about my family, about our families. And, and next week, we're going to get into the actual genealogy and some of the names and, and some of the significance of that. But this week, I want us to really focus on just the significance of, of all the ways God chose Uh, to save us. Why did he choose this way? Well, this is the way it had to be. The Son of God had to become a man and become one of us and experience life like we experience life, even as we see in the context of a family. So look with me in Hebrews 2. We're going to look at verses 14 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through verse 18 says this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
So this passage is about the Lord Jesus. And the context here, the book of Hebrews, who we don't know exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews, but the author here is the book is highlights the supremacy of Jesus. Kind of a key theme um, of Hebrews is the idea of better and how Jesus is better. The new covenant is better. Uh, in fact, let me read to you the first four verses of Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 will be on the screen for you, I think. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in the last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than there. So the, the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus, that there is no one like Jesus. Jesus is unique. And when we get to chapter 2, um, he has been warning them against neglecting the great salvation that is ours in Christ. And, and he begins to highlight in these verses, uh, starting around verses 10 and 11, how Jesus came to save his people and how it was people and not angels that he came to save. And here in these verses, we read this morning that we're getting a picture of how Jesus came to identify fully with humanity in every way except without sin so that he might do some things for us that we can't do for ourselves. He became like us, okay, like his brothers, as the text says. He became like his brothers so that he could do some things for us that we can't do for ourselves. So that's what I want us to see this morning is how Jesus became like us so that he might do some things for us. So number one, the Son of God became like us. You see there in verse 14, the children, humanity, uh, share in flesh and blood, right? We, we are human beings. And he says, so he, Jesus, likewise partook of these same things. The Word, okay, as John 1, 1 says, the Word who was in the beginning was with God and was God, at a point, in a moment in time, took on human flesh. God, the Son, became a man. He became a, became a human being while maintaining his deity. That's, uh, we talk, that's why we refer you, sometimes you'll hear people call Jesus the God-man. That's what we mean by that. He was all God like he's no man, as somebody has once said, and all man like he's no God, but he's all God and he's all man. So he, he became like us. He became a human being because he came to save human beings and not angels. So he didn't become an angel. The phrase flesh and blood is just a very clear, poignant, graphic way for the writer of Hebrews to kind of point out the fact that Jesus took on a human body. You know, the, the New Testament is very clear in communicating how this happened. The story is, is, is recounted for us in Matthew chapter 1. Let me read it for you. This is, we read this pretty much every Christmas. Rome, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, tells us about how God became a man. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put, uh, put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." Verse 21 says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, 
which means God with us. So we see in the story, the child is from the Holy Spirit. Jesus was not conceived in the traditional way. He had a biological mother, but Joseph was not his biological father. He was conceived of a virgin. He is not just with us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And this is critical because everything else we're going to learn Jesus did starts with understanding that he was born of a virgin, that he is the God-man, that he is like us in every way except for sin. So he didn't have a sin nature like me and you have a sin nature, okay? And so he, was, he had a biological mother, but, uh, the, but his birth was a miracle. His conception was a miracle. It was wrought of the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's important, though, to, to see here that part of his humanity and his experience in walking in our shoes is that God placed his son into a family. That's how much like us he became. How much flesh and blood he is. He came to to take on and embrace the full human experience, but without sin. You know, it says in the passage in Matthew 1 that Mary and Joseph were betrothed when Mary became pregnant. It's like our engagement period, but more intense. There were legal ramifications. Betrothed couples were legally bound, but they were not fully married yet. And it required actually a certificate of divorce in their day um, to undo the betrothment. But there were strict rules in place to help protect women in that day around the betrothment. And so when Mary becomes pregnant, Joseph knows he's not the father because they would have not have been intimate at this point. And, and he's going to assume she must have been unfaithful. So that's why he's going to divorce her quietly. He's getting ready to end it. When an angel appears and explains the situation that it's the son of God that's in her womb and that there's been no unfaithfulness, that a miracle has happened. And then Joseph raises Jesus as his son, as the, if you would, the adoptive father of Jesus. And Jesus has all the rights, all the privileges of a legal heir to Joseph, raised in his family as the oldest son. And this will be important when we get to the genealogy next week in Matthew chapter 1, because that genealogy, Matthew chapter 1, is Joseph's genealogy because Jesus' legal right to the throne of, uh, the legal right to the throne of David comes through Joseph's line. Because Joseph is his legal guardian. That's the way it works. It's all this, God orchestrates all this together in the perfect way. He chooses Joseph. He chooses Mary for his sovereign purposes to bring his son, the king of kings, into the world. You know, verse 17 here in our passage said, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Think about that for a second. How much he became like us. That he, that he entered into a family. And his family had drama just like your family has drama, right? I mean, you don't have a a virgin birth in your family, but have you ever had some lies told about your family? Have you ever felt like you or others in your family were misunderstood, mistreated, falsely accused, treated unfairly? Jesus can identify. (laughs) Jesus' family was misunderstood and they were falsely accused and and Jesus was slandered. He went through all these things. He became a man and lived a human life in a human family in our broken world. And while Jesus was without sin, his family was not. His mom, his dad, his brothers and sisters, they were sinners in need of a Savior. He came to save them too. But God gave Jesus godly parents. If you read Luke 1 and 2, you'll see that Mary was a godly woman who loved the Lord, godly young woman. She was a teenage girl when all this happened, most likely. And Joseph, the Bible tells us, was a just man and was unwilling to put her to shame, even when he thought at first that she may have been unfaithful to him. So Jesus grew up in a family with a mom and dad who loved him and loved God. And he he had his own family traditions, I'm sure, and his own things that he walked through as a young boy. He had a house full of siblings. And in a lot of ways, Jesus took on all this so he can relate 
to the full human experience. And so when we think about Jesus, we have to understand whatever it is we're going through, he, he gets it, right? He gets our issues, our problems, our struggles, our temptations. He gets our family dynamic. He, get, he, gets, it, he gets it all. Let me ask you, have you, have you ever been um, mentored by someone? Or, or maybe coached by someone. Um, I, I've, I've had the honor to be mentored by people growing up. I've, I've received coaching at various times. And one of the things that was always important to me, whether I was playing high school baseball or whether I was being coached in the pastorate or being discipled or whatever, is ha- have you been there, right? So if, I, if I'm going to be coached or mentored on being a good father, I want that to happen by someone who's a father, Right, uh, there, I can learn a lot about leadership by a lot of different people, but there's certain things about maybe being a pastor that I can only learn from other pastors. Uh, and when I was playing baseball, I, I wanted a coach that had actually played baseball before. Right, all, all these things. Somebody kind of being like us and having our experience is important to us. And so, when God sent His Son into the world, He sent Him to become like us, so that He can walk in our shoes. Because there were going to be some things that He's going to do for us that we can't do for ourselves that only he can do because he is the sinless son of God and the only way he could do it was to become a man and live in our place. And that's the second thing. The son of God became like us to do some things for us. He became like us to do some things for us. There's about four things in this text that it points out that Jesus, by becoming a human being, by becoming a man, he did for us. And the first one is important. It says he came to destroy Satan. It says that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus came to destroy, to defeat Satan and his work, and that was the promise from the very beginning. The, the first promise of Christmas, the first promise of the Messiah that would come is found in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, right after Adam and Eve mess up. God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's God talking to the serpent, right? Uh, that, which was, you know, was representative of Satan. And he's, he's looking at him and saying, listen, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy your work. I'm going to put an end to what you have done. And so that's why Jesus came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And that power of death is pointing to the fact that of, of because of Satan luring humanity into sin and what the wages of sin is what? It's death. So God promised from the very beginning to undo what had been done by Satan. And on the cross, through his death, Jesus Christ destroyed the work of Satan. And the devil is real. But we see from this passage, the devil is defeated. The devil's defeated. He's a defeated foe. Jesus has conquered him. We don't have to fear Satan. Or a believer doesn't have to fear anything if you're in Jesus. Because he became like us to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. But he also came to deliver us from the fear of death. It says in verse 15, and to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You know, it's normal to be afraid of death. That's not weird. That's a normal thing. In fact, apart from Jesus, this text tells us we're like slaves to the fear of death. You know, in the book of Job's, uh, one of my favorite references to death in terms of just a poignant, just a picture, powerful picture of what death is. Uh, In Job, death is referred to as, quote, the king of terrors. It's quite a picture, right? The king of terrors. You say, well, why would it be referred to as the king of terrors? Because up to that point, death was undefeated, okay? Death was undefeated. And every person dies. We all do. But whether you're rich or poor, every race, every person from every part of the world, Democrat, Republican, no matter who you are, everyone dies. But one man died. 
and came back to life to never die again. All right? And so death is no longer undefeated. One has defeated death, and he did this so he could deliver us from the fear of death. You know, as a pastor, I do a lot of funerals. That's just part of the gig, right? I mean, I had somebody ask me just this week. I was, I was somewhere, and, and somebody said, uh, they said, how do, you, um, how do you stay balanced in the midst of all that, that you don't become callous to it and kind of cold and indifferent? Or at the other hand, become consumed by it and be depressed all the time. That's just, a, you'd have to walk through death a lot. And even death of people that you don't necessarily know. And things like, how do you do that? I said, you know, I've never thought about that. Thought about that, but thanks, right? <laughs> now I'm thinking about it, right? I've never thought about that. It's just not something you really think about. It's just, kind of, it's just kind of part of it. But I got to thinking about it over the weekend. And I thought, you know, I know the one who's defeated death. I don't, I don't live in slavery to the, to the fear of death. I don't like death. I hate death. I'm not supposed to like it, right? It, sin brought it into the world. But, but Jesus has defeated it, and I get the privilege, I get the honor of telling other people how they can have victory even over death and how they can have the, the, the king of terrors slain in their life, right? And so I think that's maybe why I haven't given a lot of a thought to it is because I, I don't live in bondage to that. And you don't have to either. Jesus came to set us free from the fear of death. And as believers, when we walk through death or the death of loved ones, we need to be comforted. We need to be encouraged because it's difficult. It's painful. But believers don't need deliverance from the fear of death. Jesus gives us that. We just need to receive it. It's ours in Christ and we need to walk in it. We need to be people that can speak to people who are wrestling with the king of terrors and give them hope because we know the king of kings. And that's the bottom line when it comes to the freedom that we have in Christ. And free people need to be delivered from this fear. I believe a lot of the problems we have in our culture right now, some of them go, can be traced back to this exact fear. We have, we have a significant problem in our culture and we have had for years of men going through midlife crises. And they go out and they, they buy cars they can't afford and they get girlfriends that aren't their wife and they, or they escape to pornography or some other kind of sinful means. And you think, why is that? And it's because the, the king of terrors has begun to enter the line of sight. And they begin to panic and look for an escape because they realize their, their window on this earth is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and, and they kind of freak out. And only the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has the answer. Only we steward the message that offers eternal life and a reason to live that's beyond this life, that gives meaning and purpose to this life. And Jesus came not only to destroy Satan for us, but to deliver us from the fear of death, and we get to steward the message that delivers other people from the fear of death. But he also came to satisfy God's wrath toward our sin. He came to satisfy God's wrath toward our sin. That's the other thing he did for us. In verse 16, says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, Satan is an angel that, that fell, that, that rebelled against God, but it is not angels, as he has said here, that he came to help. He came to help, it says here, the offspring of Ab Abraham. Now, that phrase here refers to believers. All of us who place our faith in Christ become the offspring of Abraham. We talked about that. We did a whole series in the book of Romans and how we get grafted in. And Jesus became like us, it says here, 
so that he might become our high priest. And people need forgiveness. And that was the whole deal with the high priest in the Old Testament, right? It was the deal with sins. And we have a fundamental problem with God, a fundamental sin problem with God. And Jesus came so that people can be forgiven of their sins. He didn't come for angels, but for human beings. <laughs> so it's like us that he came, became, but without sin. Now notice how it describes him. It says he, it describes him as a merciful and faithful high priest. Uh, you might say willing and able or compassionate and reliable. In other words, Jesus wants to forgive your sin, and Jesus can forgive your sin. Jesus wants to show you mercy, and Jesus can show you mercy. He is willing and he is able. He is trustworthy and reliable, and he is compassionate and full of grace and mercy. He is both of these things. You might know that the high priest would enter once a year to make sacrifice for the sins of the people. If you go back and read the Old Testament and how it worked under the Old Covenant, the high priest was, was one of the people, right? And he wasn't sinless. But he was one of the people, and he would, take, he would take the animal in, and he would sacrifice that animal, but it tells us in the New Testament that the blood of animals can't take away our sin. That's why they went in every year. Every year, the high priest had to go back in there and make the sacrifices, and he had to do that every single year because it wasn't actually removing the sin, all right? It wasn't actually doing that. It was, it was a picture that was pointing ahead to one that would come that would be able to take away the sin. And so Jesus is the high priest who's also the Lamb of God. Because what we need is a high priest who could be sinless, who could be like us as the high priest was, yet without sin. So that he could come in and not offer up an animal, but he offers up himself. He offers up himself. And that's ultimately what had to happen for sin, for our sin to be removed. And so enter the Son of God. And the whole big point of the high priest was to make sacrifices, to deal with sins. And Jesus in his mercy and his faithfulness has dealt with our sins on the cross. One sacrifice for all time, for all sin. Uh, the fancy word you see here in this passage that you probably didn't use this morning at breakfast is propitiation, right? It's like a Bible word. We don't use it a lot outside of the Bible. But it's an important word to have it in our translation and not to just use some other word because it paints some pictures there that not just, just any word won't do. It's a really important word. And it carries the idea of an atoning sacrifice. Now, the idea of wrath being turned to favor. And so Jesus comes and he makes atonement for us. On the cross, Jesus takes the wrath you and I, I deserve for our sins so that God's wrath towards us can be turned towards favor, all right? And so Jesus stands in the gap for us. He takes the punishment we deserve. And like the high priest, he goes in to make the sacrifice. Like the lamb, he, he lays down and gives his life, and he willingly comes and lays down his life for you and me so that we can be given forgiveness. See, the, the Christmas story doesn't end in a cradle. That's just like the beginning. It goes to a cross and, and to an empty tomb, and we've got to get the, the, the whole story. It, it makes no difference that he was born if he, if, he was, if he didn't die for us, and it makes no difference that he, that he died if he wasn't raised from the dead. We need the, the whole picture all the time. And the greatest need that human beings have is to have their sins forgiven, to, to not have it held to our account. And so Jesus comes, and he takes the punishment we deserve so that we can be given righteous standing with God living sinlessly in our place and dying for our sins so that sinners can be forgiven and made righteous. He's a, a merciful and, and faithful high priest, unlike any other. 
And see, it's a, it's a big deal that the Son of God entered into human humanity. It's a, it's a big deal that, that he entered into the, the womb of Mary and was, was born of a virgin and, and lived this sinless life for us because he did all this so that he could take our place, so that he could live in our place, and so that he could die in our place. He became like us so that he could do some things for us, but in particular, he did something instead of us, in place of us. He died the death we deserve to die. And so this Christmas season, if you've never been forgiven of your sin, if you've never received the gift of what Christ has done through placing your faith in him, that's, that's the most important decision you can make. But it doesn't stop there. There's a, there's a fourth thing this text tells us he, did, he does for us. He, he helps us. He helps us with our trials and our temptations. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Uh, that word tempted there is, is a neutral word. Like in, our, in our language, when we say tempted, we tend to think of like tempted to do something evil. But the Greek word, okay, not to get too much into that, but the Greek word there is neutral, and it can refer to trials or temptations. It, it can refer to testing, or it can refer to being solicited to do evil. So, so here when it says he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. It, it means he's able to help us both when we walk through trials and when we walk through temptations because the Son of God walked through trials and he walked through temptations. Let's talk about trials for a second. Did you know that no one has ever been through the extent of trials that Jesus has had? Uh, no matter how bad we may think we've had it. None of us has had it as bad as Jesus. So explain that to me. Well, think about it for a second. We, all go, we don't all go through the same exact trials. Uh, some of us in this room have been through more trials, no doubt, than others have. More difficult, more pain, more suffering. At times, I have to sit across from people and I have to say these words. I can't imagine what you're going through because I can't imagine what they're going through. I mean, I, I can't identify with everybody and everybody's suffering, nor everybody mine. But Jesus is different because only Jesus knows what it's like, first of all, to be sinless. Uh, to do nothing wrong and yet to experience suffering and trials and pain and hurt in a sinful world even though he is completely and utterly innocent. Like I've experienced pain and even maybe even pain that, 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 that and I didn't cause it. But I've also dealt out my fair share of pain, okay? I've, I've caused my fair share of trouble and then I've, I've received trouble. But I've, I've caused my fair share too. I'm a sinner. But Jesus, he didn't, he didn't dish it out. He just took it. He, he, he walked through trials and he walked through suffering. But he didn't contribute to the, to the, to the, the sin pool in the world. He, not one single drop. Not one single sin did he ever commit. Yet he suffered like sinners suffer. But he wasn't a sinner. Never sinned, but it went through intense trials. Jesus was falsely accused. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was mistreated. Jesus was slandered. From a human perspective, Jesus was murdered. And in all of that was sinless. So he's been through trials upon trials, and in a way that we can't fully comprehend what it must have been like because he was without sin in every way. He can identify with suffering. He can identify with trials even better than you and I can in every way because in every single one of them, he remains sinless. Think about temptation for a second. Do you know no one has ever been tempted to the degree Jesus has? 
Uh, when we've all been tempted, we've tempted in various ways, and your temptations might not be my temptations, and my temptations might not be your temptations, but we're all tempted. We're all tempted to do things that we shouldn't do, say things we shouldn't say, think things we shouldn't think. We're all tempted to one degree or another to sin. And only Jesus never gave in to the temptation. Only Jesus has experienced temptation to the fullest. Only he knows what it's like to go all the way through the temptation and never sin. Every single one of us in the room, at some point or another, we resist temptation, we resist temptation, but we've all at some point given in. Resist temptation, at some point, we've given in. Every single one of us. Even if you say, I made it a really long time. Okay, Jesus never gave in. And to this day, he's never given in. He's never sinned. So he's experienced, he, in his life on this earth, he experienced temptation to a greater degree than any human being ever has because he never gave in. Let me explain to you. Um, let's say we all decided to make a pact this morning to go on a holiday diet, okay? And we said, these are the things we're going to eat. We agreed. We wrote them on the wall over here. You know, we can have, you know, we're not going to drink any caffeine, no sugar, no sweets. It's all going to be healthy stuff, right? And we had our whole little deal over here. Next week, we come back together. How are we doing on the diet? And a handful of deacons have already dropped off. <laughs> Probably me, right? They come in with, we come in with our donuts, and we've already given up. We come in a week later, three weeks later, four weeks later, and, and some more people start to drop. And we go all the way through this, and we reconvene at this time a year later, and we begin to talk and reminisce about the diet, right? And there's a handful of people at that point that's still doing the diet, man, and they haven't had any sugar, and they haven't had any caffeine, and they've only eaten healthy stuff, and no junk fruit, and they're talking about how great they feel and how much weight they've lost and all this kind of stuff. Somebody speaks up and says, man, I, I just, I, I couldn't take the no sugar after the first month. I just couldn't do it. I gave in. person still on the diet says, I've done 12 months with no sugar. And as you begin to talk and you begin to have the conversation, you begin to realize something. The person that can identify with the least amount of people are the people who gave in the soonest. And the people who can identify with the most people are the people who never gave in. And see, because Jesus never gave in to the temptation, he can identify in a way that we can't possibly imagine. Because he experienced, you say, well, I made it, you know, six months before I gave in to that temptation. He never gave in. You understand what I'm saying? It's like somebody, somebody compared it to holding your breath underwater. We might go under, we all hold our breath, and some hold our breath longer than others, but, but, but Jesus didn't need to come up for air. See what I'm saying? And so, so I might hold mine for a solid minute, and I come up, I'm heaving. And you come up and, like at 30 seconds, and, 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 you're, you know, and, and maybe I'm in more pain at the end of that, but, but Jesus just kept on. See what I'm saying? He can, he can identify in a way that we can't possibly imagine in the way that he walked through temptation. Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16 says it this way, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's why that's so important. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. <laughs> he, he can relate, but at the same time, he can actually help because he's not a sinner. He was tempted, but without sin. See, Jesus is different from you and I. He's like us, but he's different in a very good way in that he's conquered. See, the first Adam comes into the world. 
first Adam comes in the world, he's placed in a garden. And he's told, you can eat from every tree, but you can't eat from that tree. And what does he do? I don't know how long he made it, but it wasn't long enough. And they give in. Second Adam comes, and he's placed into this sinful world where sin is everywhere and it's broken. And he's tempted. In fact, he goes into a desert and is tempted by Satan himself and never sins. Goes to a cross, never sins. Beaten and mistreated, sold out by those who loved him. Said they loved him, never mistreated. Excuse me, never, never, never gives in, never sins, even under the mistreatment. He's different than us in all the right ways so that he can be the merciful and faithful high priest that we need. I'm willing to bet this morning that there are some Christians who are suffering. Some in ways no one else knows. Maybe you're suffering silently, suffering alone. But Jesus knows, and Jesus can identify with you in your pain, in your suffering, in your trials, in a way that you can't possibly even imagine. And the last thing you need to do when you're walking through that is to lean away, right? That's a temptation. We need to, we need to lean into him, right? Sometimes when we go through trials one of the, and suffering, the thing sometimes people think is, well, I, just, I don't want to be around church people today. I don't even want to go to church. I don't want, and that's when you need the church more than ever. That's when you need, Jesus is here. This is the body of Christ. He is present and with his people, and he is the one ultimately that can help you. I'm willing to bet there are some Christians this morning struggling with temptation. Maybe some who have been giving in to temptation. And there's ne- you're never more tempted to run away from Jesus than when you've sinned against Jesus. But that's not the time to run away from Jesus. That's the time to run to Jesus, right? He wants us to run to him when we're tempted and when we fail. He's merciful and faithful. He wants to help, but you can't help if we run away. And I'm willing to bet there are some people here today who have never truly trusted Jesus. Maybe you've never actually crossed the line of faith. And, and I'm here to tell you, Christmas is more, about, more than about just some, a baby that was born in the manger and we sing some Christian songs that have written a long time ago. But it's about that baby that was born was God in the flesh who came to live in your place. Not just die in your place, to live in your place. To live a sinless life, to be tempted and to not fall and to, to not fail and to go to a cross and on that cross offer up his life as a payment for your sin and then to be raised from the dead three days later so that if you or me or anyone else turns away from our sin and receives him as our Lord, our King and our Savior we can see Satan defeated in our life. We can experience freedom from the fear of death. We can have our sins forgiven and we can have a high priest who is merciful and faithful and can help us in all of our suffering, all of our trials, and all of our temptations. And if you've never made that step, that's the most important thing you can do this Christmas season is to take that step of faith. And I want to encourage you to do that this morning. Let's pray. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I would love to pray with you and for you this morning. If you're here and you'd say, Pastor, if I'm to be real honest, I'm not sure that I've ever become a Christian, that I've ever made a decision to follow Christ, that I've, I don't know, that I've really placed my faith in Jesus. And I would love your prayers. That's all I'm asking for. I'm not gonna come get you. I'm not gonna 
talk about you. I just want to stand here and in my heart be praying for you. If there's anybody like that, would you just quietly kind of raise your hand and say, just pray for me. I've got my concerns about that. Just, just pray for me. We're going to pray here in just a moment, and then we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And when we do that, that's an opportunity for you to just reflect on what you've heard today, but also to pray and to, and to if, you, if you need prayer, if I can pray with you or for you, I'd love to, I'll be standing right over here to my left or your right, and I'd love to pray with you. If you're here this morning, you've got questions about what it means to follow Christ. You can let us know on a connection card. You can come talk to me here in just a moment or after the service. I'll hang around and we can talk. But whatever, wherever it is you're at in your spiritual journey this morning, whether you're a longtime Christian, whether you're not quite there yet, you're not sure what you believe about all this, if there's some way we can help you in your journey, no pressure. We just want to help. That's why we're here. Let's pray. Father.